Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Hello, um, happy Friday, everyone. Happy um, Friday. We'd like to welcome everyone to the UT PMNR podcast. Um, special homecoming lecture for Dr. Moss, and then also we have Dr. Ott here. So um, I'll, we'll go ahead and introduce ourselves. I'm um, Alex Wu, I'm the chief residents, and this is. I'm Eric Wagner. I'm the th- uh, third year resident at UT in PMNR. Okay, and we'll have Dr. Moss and Dr. Ott introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Dr. Ott. I'm the director of the concussion program at Memorial Hermann Ironman Sports Medicine Institute and associate professor at UT Health McGovern Medical School. And hi, I'm Manuel Mas. I'm a PNR physician, brain injury medicine uh, specialist, and uh, I used to be the tier concussion program medical director. So let's get started. We're going to start with Dr. Ott. We have some questions for you regarding concussion. We had a great uh, uh, um, lecture this morning on discussing all things related to concussion. How did you find yourself getting interested in in concussion and the management of concussion? So uh, I completed my internship at the VA hospital in Pittsburgh where I did a lot of work with uh, mild traumatic brain injury but other neurological disorders and as I was pursuing um, interests and fellowship training uh, at the time UPMC in Pittsburgh was offering a position for sports neuropsychology um, to participate in their concussion program that had been newly formed and so as a former athlete and someone who is a lover of sports I felt like this was a really good opportunity, and at that time, this was back in 2005, uh, you know, concussion management was really its its infancy in in terms of like, you know, how it evolves and and the risk factors and other things, so um, I really just kind of found myself in a great situation and since then have um, specialized in that particular area of medicine. That's wonderful. So how have you, how have you seen in your, in your career so far, how have you seen the management and, and the definition of concussion just in general evolve? It's certainly the con- uh, concussion definition is more vast. Um, it encompasses many more symptoms or acute markers or presentations uh, when it happens. Uh, but also I would just report that even athletes and the way that they report their concussions have evolved too. So early on, um, I've worked with professional athletes since I've been out of fellowship enduring, and early on they would be very dismissive of their symptoms. They you know, would be quick to get back into the path of their sport. And now I see them more hesitant and saying, hey doc, I wanna be right. Do you think I'm okay? Um, you know, reporting everything, and you know, I think that's a really great evolution. It shows that we've done a lot with our public awareness and our research. That's great. So, do you think, and you kind of touched on this in grand rounds, do you think that uh, the medical community is we have an appropriate uh, understanding of the symptoms? Uh, in other words, do you think that we're hyper vigilant? Do you think that we're over treating concussion, and do you think that that has an effect on? the athlete's identification with their concussion symptoms? Well, I'm sure people have, you know, varying opinions on on that very thing about are we over-treating it and not. Um, I would say that as a sports medicine community and just a medical community in general, we are better at diagnosing the injury. Um, So a lot of folks are still maybe trying to focus on, okay, what's the tool for diagnosis? I would actually encourage them to focus more on what can we do to get people better more quickly Mm -hmm. and when does the concussion end and when are the symptoms maybe overlapping with other issues and so I would say that our focus really, yes diagnosis is super important and we don't want to miss anything but I would say we need to focus or shift our efforts now with research on okay how who's going to be the problematic issue or individual that needs more help Mm -hmm. and um, you know what can we do to guide them further through the process. What are the biggest obstacles in terms of conducting that research? Are there things that stand in your way to be able to evaluate concussion? That's a really great question. I think that because concussion is 
different in every individual and even the person that suffers from multiple concussions every concussion is different mm-hmm. there's no two concussions that are alike right. but it becomes different it becomes difficult because um, the actual sequelae for each individual is different. So, and plus, people are utilizing different techniques. They're utilizing different um, assessment tools. So it becomes like all over the board when it when there's no standardization. So I think it's really the lack of standardization and the approach. But people are still trying to explore what that is. Right, right. So it to, to me, it, it seems like the the assessment is becoming a little bit more convoluted and. And as someone who might want to go into sports medicine or, or someone who wants to specialize in brain injury, what are the resources that we can use that have a more streamlined definition of concussion, management, symptoms, the whole package? Yeah, I think that uh, various sport um, organizations or um, you know, like neurologists and neuropsychologists and PM&R, I think they've all come together and they've sort of also developed their own um, like process paper or whatever, a white paper about how they want to manage it. So I would look there first because you want to kind of fall within your own discipline, right? But then working with an interdisciplinary team can help you with those things as well. Um, good point. Good point. Um, during your talk, you mentioned how one of the neuropsychologist roles is to be the leader of the inter- interdisciplinary team. Can you kind of go into more detail about that? What's that look like and kind of explain for our audience? Yeah. So, you know, there are several concussion programs all across the country. We have one here. We're lucky to have Mm -hmm. that. Um, And so every program maybe has different specialists at the top in terms of providing leadership. Um, There are several that are neuropsychologist-led. There are others that are neurologist-led or, you know, PM&R-led. So it just kind of um, is based upon what are the resources and, and maybe the expertise of the people in the community. But um, as far as a neuropsychologist, I was kind of think of it like I'm quarterbacking the team. So, you know, people are giving me information in my headset, but I'm also calling the plays and and making recommendations and and involving um, other specialists in the process. So I'm lucky that I oversee a large network of physicians, physical therapists, um, and athletic trainers, and we all come together, you know, in terms of working on our particular concussion program. That's interesting because from the physiatrist's Point of view, we're typically the quarterbacks kind of running the show, and and I feel like this is one of those uh, specific fields where we would actually want to defer to the neuropsychologist to be the quarterback, mm-hmm. and we would be one of the ancillary services providing medical management, pharmacologic management. But it seems like uh, when you all run the show, that the the patient has a better, a more streamlined care. Would you agree with that? Well, I appreciate that sentiment, <laughs> confidence. Um, I would like to think so and hope so. I think that when we look at professional sports now, they've kind of developed a really good model where everybody is involved from the get go. I mean, from the sideline all the way to the the, the clearing point for the person to go back to play. Right. So, you know, in that particular instance, you know. Everybody is doing everything they, everything they can along um, the way so that we don't miss anything. And sometimes the physician bows out and they say, well, there's nothing for me to do here from a pharmacological standpoint or ordering diagnostic tests, more about the behavioral component. So if we can utilize that model that's been happening in the NFL and some other sports within our own communities, I, I mean, I think there's something to be said for how they uh, streamline that. Right, right. Because right now it seems like we have some options in terms of pharmacologic management, but really, like you were kind of alluding to, it, it, it differs for each patient and, and we have to be able to optimize whatever is lacking. So if it's, a, if it's emotional ability or if it's difficulty concentrating, you know, you might give a stimulating medication if it's difficulty sleeping. Dr. Moss was talking about melatonin. So, um, you know, is, is this kind of an individual case-by-case basis that we have to take and, and do we have any, any guidelines that can be an umbrella uh, for medical management or does this have to be case by case? Yeah, so with this injury, and I think this is why it's so challenging to treat, like, you know, Dr. Moss had mentioned that he thought that, you know, he was gonna be able to generalize some of his skills with another population of this population. Um, It is a tough population to work with because I love doing it, but it's tough because, you, you know, you really do have to get every detail about the person's past if you can not you know to the best of your ability and really be with them at every step of the way so again i encourage people that if you're just going to see them and you say i'm going to see them back in three weeks or four weeks 
and you don't have any contact with them along the way, you know, that can be problematic. You have to really be there to answer questions on a quick email because each day their situation may change. The more they um, get back into the activity, their symptoms get worse, they get concerned, or maybe you need to start a medication before you see them back. So it's definitely individualized. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. What, what's a, a, a typical timeline that you would see a patient? And is it, is it based on the severity of their concussion? Would you see a patient more frequently if they've had a very severe concussion? And how do you make that determination? Uh, well, I think every clinician probably operates with um, their own, operates within their setting as to how quickly they get to see someone. Since I work within orthopedics and sports medicine, our mentality anyways with sports medicine is it's a very urgent field, everything's an emergency, um, then we, you know, our kind of MO is to see people within 24 to 48, 72 hours if possible. So we have to do that. And sometimes it's not this full big assessment, it's just about making contact, assessing the signs and symptoms, and then educating the patient. So. Um, there's been research though to, to look at individuals that get seen in that particular time frame versus those that come a week or two later have better outcomes. It's interesting that you mentioned how you see the patients in kind of an acute phase. So can you go into how, how do patients find their way to seeing you? Like what is the process? Well, we're really fortunate because we have a large athletic training network that we're involved in as part of our overall program. And so because um, of my specialty sports concussion, primarily the referrals come directly from the athletic trainers within our um, institute or also within the school setting or the team physician that maybe works the sideline. And then our third referral um, pathway is our ERs. Um, you mentioned that this patient population can be um, challenging to work with. What are some of the things that you personally enjoy about um, working with them? Well, I can tell you the, the most exciting thing is to get a late night text on Friday night that the person that you just worked with, you know, had the, the rushing touchdown or, <laughs> you know, like was VIP of the game. There's nothing more gratifying than getting that phone call. Um, because, you know, athletes are very driven, um, they want to succeed, they've worked really hard, and so to take them out of their sport, you know, that causes just so many emotions and conflicts, and so that the fact that they were able to work back into that and you were able to guide them, and the family too, I mean, the family is a big part of this, we don't want to forget them as the part of the unit, that's the most exciting thing. Are you ever going to the football games to, to see them and encourage them after maybe a period of time that they've had off? Are you are you participating? Oh, being able to watch them afterwards. Yeah. Um, not so much because I, I work with hundreds of high schools and yeah, hundreds of athletes, so it'd be sense. a bit challenging. But this year, I'm excited. I'm gonna um, have a bit more of a role um, on the sideline with the Houston Roughnecks, um, oh, yeah. the XFL team that we have, which is, you know their season starts on February eighth. So that's pretty exciting. Um, again, my it's beyond my scope to do any kind of sideline assessment per se. That'll be the physician, but we'll work together as far as like what do we do after we diagnose yeah. a concussion to get the ball rolling. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because uh, you, you bring up another point. Uh, at what point do you feel like your input is valued by teams and sometimes might not be as valued in terms of return to play? I mean, are coaches or staff members trying to nudge you in the right direction or possibly in a quicker direction for the patient to return to play? Yeah, so certainly when you work in this capacity, you have to maintain integrity, and that can be challenging at times when you, you know, everyone probably falls uh, a little bit victim of like, oh my gosh, this is the playoff game, and you know, what am I doing to yeah. prevent something? But I can also tell you that's evolved over time as well. Um, uh. More individuals are certainly aware of the role of a sports neuropsychologist now and their um, contribution to the management component. So um, have I ever gotten some pushback? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, have I lost opportunities to work with people because I thought the athlete should stay out with good evidence and, yeah. and they didn't think so, sure. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in my particular situation, um, you know, I'm going to put the athlete's well-being first, mm -hmm. even though it can cause some waves and, and maybe affect some future referrals. But for the most part, the community is very supportive. Um, I think they've really come to understand the importance of this management and getting the athlete healthy and preventing long-term consequences. So I feel a lot more supported yeah. than non-supported. And what are those long-term consequences? I mean, are you, have you, I'm sure you've dealt with athletes in the acute setting and maybe over a few months, even up to a few years. Have you had any patients in, in the last five years that you've done a kind of a long-term follow-up and how have the concussions that they've had uh, manifested? 
Yeah, there have been a few. I mean, of course, everyone that's coming into our program is at a different point of entry. So there have been a few that I had the um, good fortune to see maybe while they were playing professionally and have came in after. Um, but I also see a lot of folks that have been retired, maybe, um, you know, they've been out of the league for 20 or 30 years or not playing professional sports and they have some challenges or maybe just want to see how they're doing, just a checkup. Mm -hmm. So I get to see everybody kind of at each phase, which is really exciting. Yeah. And um, as far as long-term effects, um, they can be different for everyone. Um, some people adjust really well to, to retiring from sport. Others have challenges that maybe were ignored while they were playing. Um, a lot of retirement issues, mm -hmm. you know, family re-entry, because a lot of these folks, you know, weren't as involved in their family as they were focused on playing. And so now they're back in parenting right. and their spouse. And so right. there's a lot of aspects. But, um, yeah, certainly try to address those long-term potential uh, consequences, get them treatment, inform them that, you know, just because you've had multiple concussions is not a death sentence. We can do things to treat you and help you with your quality of life. Right. And I I'm, I have uh, one more question. I don't know how much more time you have. I guess it is 10 to 10. Um, but in turn, so based on your extensive experience in managing concussion and, and what you've seen over months, years, decades, however long it's been, in your opinion, what are the most promising pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic modalities used to treat people with at least mild to moderate concussions? Well, I think that uh, we certainly have found that some things work for some patients, uh, you know, other things do not, and we kind of tried. Um, for the females out there, it's like finding the right pair of shoes for your suit or your outfit. So it's kind of the same thing with um, the pharmacological approach. Of course, I just want to um, you know note that I'm not the one prescribing the medications, but often as part of a team advising on maybe the effectiveness yeah. of that or how it's going. Um, you know, I do like some of the things that we utilize for people a week or two after their their injury if they're not progressing with the behavioral aspects we talked about. Um, I don't think there's one go-to medication that's good for everybody. And certainly in adolescents, which is the population I work with the most frequently, there's some apprehension of prescribing medications in that group, um, you know, for side effects and so forth. So um, I just, again, think that we try our best to see, you know, what we think might work based on signs and symptoms. And this, that's the importance, too, of working in a group where you can mm -hmm. rely on other people with expertise for the medicine management. Mm -hmm. And in terms of non-pharmacologic management, I know we had talked about possible vestibular therapy we have these modalities does anything look super promising to you and and kind of on the horizon in terms of research yeah that's that's a great um, question I think that the vestibular stuff has gained a lot more focus um, I think again where it's controversial is when do you introduce that therapy to folks I mean it, more often than not you know I like to wait a week or two because by the time they're back those symptoms have all resolved and we're in the for those folks that we refer by the time they get the appointment they're canceling it because they're better so yeah. Um, but once they're in there, I've seen some really good strides with those people because the thing is that individuals want to feel like they have a hand in their rehab. They want to feel like they're doing whatever they can do. So if you just tell them, hey, just sit down and wait till your symptoms resolve like we used to do, mm -hmm. you know, that's not the approach that they want to hear. They want to hear at least they, they're doing something to contribute to their right, recovery. Right, right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Yes. Ott. We really appreciate it. Dr. Ott has to get going, but we are going to continue this with Dr. Moss. All right, so Dr. Right. Moss, thank you so much for, for coming in and, for, and for Grand Rounds. That was, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, uh, concussion, the, the definition is, has, has been changing over time, and the management, like we talked with Dr. Oss, has changed. Has changed. Um, so from, from a physician standpoint, can you please first describe, you know, how did you find such an interest and passion in concussion? So uh, thanks for the question. Um, so uh, I generally I, I got uh, an interest in concussion patients based on the fact that they sometimes are I wouldn't say underrepresented but undertreated mm -hmm. or since it's something that can go about unnoticed. For example, you've heard the term like the walking injured or or uh, and mm -hmm. extrapolating it not only for for athletes but for non-athletic population. So uh, I felt in my brain injury training that uh, we were given a lot of treatment and a lot of interest into the more obvious causes of TBI or the most obvious patients, but not the mild traumatic brain injury patients or concussion patients, which are generally the larger group. Mm -hmm. As for other uh, aspects that were interesting is, as we discussed with Dr. Odd, there's nothing set in stone. So uh, it's a very, uh, like, 
rapidly changing field. There's lots still to discover, even though there's been a lot of media exposure and a lot of research into it, there's still a whole lot more to do. And that seems interesting mm -hmm. like, to be in, in that kind of field. So you, you mentioned how it's a rapidly changing field. Now, in terms of uh, medical management, let's start with pharmacologic management. What are some of the things that have not changed? What are some of the mainstays that you have used that you know, people listening could utilize in their own care of people with uh, concussions or, or very mild TBIs? So uh, as we said at Grand Rounds, first off, when you look at consensus statements and, and other review articles, there is no one option that is going to help you uh, treat, pharmacologically treat a concussion patient. Mm -hmm. So uh, as, as we said, there's no FDA-approved medication for it. Even the ones that you use for concussion symptoms or concussive symptoms are not in a way, FDA approval or like stipulate this is the one that you're going to use for a mm -hmm. concussion patient. Right. That being said, uh, we should be treating symptoms. So, if for example, if uh, as as probably the listeners know, yeah. concussion patients typically uh, have symptoms of headaches, of balance issues, uh, sometimes cognitive deficits, and then uh, that's those are the symptoms that you should be following to treat. Mm -hmm. Other treatment modalities that you know for that specific other population, so for example, migraines or, or tension headaches and such. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend to f treat the symptoms. Uh, mm -hmm. Not everyone is, is the same as Dr. Ott said. Mm -hmm. So f uh, a good physical exam and a good history is paramount and, and also a past medical history uh, to look at uh, potential premortem factors that are making the injury worse and then treating the symptoms that are presenting themselves uh, in clinics. So there's a couple of research articles or review articles that show a good um, like a set of tools, like a toolbox. There's actually one uh, that it gives you like specific questions and specific physical exams that you should be doing to tease out those symptoms. Oh, kind um, of like an algorithm to follow? Right, like, okay. like, an algorithm, like a checklist, for example. Ah, and yes. and uh, uh, actually there is one that was made by uh, John Letty's group and he, it allows you to be pretty systematic about it and teasing out which symptoms are present for a concussion patient. And then when you get that, then you should start first deciding if you're going to treat, and mm -hmm. if you are, then treating it based on that symptom, oh. not as globally as a concussion, but okay, I'm going to treat this headache, or I'm going to treat uh, the balance deficit with, if it is a medication, a medication, but more commonly than not, it's more vestibular therapy, Great. and going from there. So let's talk about headaches, because that's one of the most common uh, symptoms of a concussion. Uh, I noticed uh, that you had mentioned uh, Tylenol, Advil, um, uh, Triptans, uh, when do you decide to use one versus the other and are you always trying to wean down especially for something like with it with the triptan so uh, first off uh, first we should know uh, what's our population so what's the patient that you're treating so mm -hmm. if it's an athlete as dr. Oz said uh, patients typically recover quickly mm -hmm. so First off, before treating, knowing when are you in the on the time frame of the of the injury or the timeline, but if it's a, a time that uh, is longer than expected for recovery, then you should start uh, using medications. For example, uh, for headache medications, as you said, again we're following the algorithms and the treatment recommendations. For example, from the, the neurology uh, academy uh, for a specific headache subtype. For example, migraines being the most common headache uh, in concussion typically responds well uh, to simple oral medications such as uh, NSAIDs or uh, acetaminophen, Tylenol, Panadol. Mm -hmm. uh, commonly go to that first uh, for patients that are not too far along uh, the, the injury. However, if you are in a clinic where you receive patients who have persistent post-concussive symptoms uh, or already use all of that, mm -hmm. then you should be thinking about the second or third agent along the line. Triptans, as you mentioned, are a commonly used medication for headaches, specifically for migraines. I tended to, I tend to wait, perhaps, uh, first I tried the simple, the simple thing like Advil or NSAIDs or a Tylenol, and that doesn't help, I provide a triptan prescription for abortive uh, therapy. Like, uh, so if, um, we, as with migraines, if you're having either symptoms of a migraine coming in, like an aura, mm -hmm. or, or a starting, then you should get a triptan or, the, or whatever abortive medication you chose, 
But uh, if, uh, and again, I'm not a neurologist, but uh, if you speak with a, a specific headache specialist, uh, you might hear that we also don't want to be using too much of the triptans. Yeah. We, we want to, uh, uh, because if, 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 if we are, then it means that uh, something is off. Uh, right. we, we should be doing something else for the patient, and it, uh, that could actually be, in a way, uh, detrimental to the patient. So yeah, I, I, as, I will try to be eventually winning down specifically triptans. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we have the pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic management. You had mentioned in Grand Rounds uh, submaximal exercise, uh, and you had used an example of if the, the max heart rate was 120, uh, maybe have the patient uh, or, you know, athlete engaged in where there's a heart rate of 100. How do you define submaximal exercise? Because there's, you know, there's aerobic, there's anaerobic, there's different type of contractions. I mean, it's isometric contraction while laying supine, an increased risk for increased intracerebral pressure. Um, how, what kind of guidelines do you give your patients and, and tips, things to avoid versus things to engage in? Uh, good question. So, uh, some maximal uh, exercise, um, it has become a mainstay treatment uh, in concussion. It has been included in recent consensus statements because there's a, a fair amount of research on it. Uh, as we said in Grand Rounds, there are a couple of groups in, in the United States and around the world that, that have been the leaders of it, uh, specifically, for example, the one in Buffalo with John Netty. And the uh, it's basically uh, trying to get to a point where you can exercise without having symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, if uh, going by the the articles, what you would do is put a patient on a uh, on a treadmill, and going to your question, uh, this is referring to aerobic exercise, uh, okay. not specifically gotcha. strengthening exercise. I see. So it's some in a way some maximum aerobic exercise, uh -huh. at least per protocols. And then you put the patient on a run at light speed, and then you start to increase the incline uh, degrees little by little, uh, up till the patient has symptoms. And I'm, I'm, it's definitely more detailed than this. But um, when you get to that point, you are measuring the patient's heart rate, and you write that down. So this is the, let's say 100 to make math simpler. So it's 100, and 100 is where you start to have symptoms. So we know that we don't, uh, as with anything in medicine, you don't want to be uh, causing harm. So um, you shouldn't prescribe patients, just let's go exercise and do whatever, uh, because it could potentially be bringing about symptoms like headaches and, mm -hmm. and vestibular deficits. So you don't want to get to that point. First off, because we don't know if that would make things worse. But the second part is that who is going to want to exercise if they're having symptoms? So we want them to exercise uh, so uh, and do it comfortably. So then uh, when you have that heart rate, you go a step below that. So I, I believe that the, the papers say about 80% of, the, of, the, of that point. So if it's 100, then it will be about 80. And then you instruct your patient in a, in a systematic way do aerobic exercise using that heart rate. Uh, if someone doesn't have the means to measure the heart rate, then in a way you should at least go by symptoms, like try to keep it at a point where you're not having symptoms. Yeah. Uh, and then little by little, every week or every two weeks, you can test that again mm -hmm. and see if that uh, uh, the heart rate increased now, mm -hmm. like your max threshold level, and then you progress the therapy or the exercise that way. It has been shown that uh, in the pediatric population, adolescents and, and, and athletes in general, that this is a pretty good way of, of getting patients to engage and to get better. Uh, contrary to the previous, um, I guess, dogma, which was um, rest, mm -hmm. uh, like rest your brain and, and cocoon therapy, like Dr. Ott was saying. Still, when you look at the consensus statements, um, a period of rest, a relative rest of like a, a day or two, it could be helpful. Uh, but again, it's relative rest. It's mm -hmm. not sending you to a bed and not doing anything. Gotcha. Um, so that, uh, sorry, Alex, I just have kind of, I just want to put some things together now. So let's say just hypothetically, we have a, a senior in high school, an 18 year old boy or young man who is a soccer player. He's, he's had a few concussions. He's seen you. We've tried Tylenol, Advil. You've started him on a board of therapy, sumatriptan, PRN, let's say. Um, he's engaged in a little bit of vestibular therapy. Hasn't found tremendous benefit. You got him on a submaximal uh, exercise protocol where he's engaging in 80% of his 100% heart rate max. 
and things are going well, let's say then he gets another concussion. Mm -hmm. um, this starts to bring in the idea of, all right, what kind of imaging do we want to get? And, and that I think this is one of the tricks that for current practitioners, what, what do we order and when do we order that? I mean, are we getting CT heads without contrast after every subsequent concussion? Are we just getting a baseline to begin with? When do we pursue possible MRI? What, what are your thoughts on that? As, as for imaging, again, um, uh, going by your example, not necessarily, the fact that you had a second concussion doesn't necessarily mean that you need to get an imaging study mm. unless there's a, uh, like signs of, of a worse TBI. Mm -hmm. uh, so as we said in grand rounds, like seizures or, or something that, that will make you think that something is off. Or if, if even if it's not as something as, as like obvious as like a seizure or, or like a prolonged loss of consciousness, someone that is, uh, if, that is going backwards quicker than, than you would expect. Mm. But if you had a concussion, even if it's your second or third, it doesn't mean that you need to go about and get a CT. A CT scan, for example, that's the most obvious one and the one that you would do for obvious types of symptoms. So for example, if you want well, internal bleeding, like an intracranial hemorrhage or, or a fracture, and these are like bigger things, then of course get a CT scan because it's quick, it's, it's, it's safe, yeah. it's cheaper than MRI. But in patients who uh, are not having those symptoms, uh, I wouldn't recommend having a CT scan for your second or third concussion. However, you might start thinking about other uh, like higher level imaging studies in need. So for example, an MRI, like a brain MRI can give you more information. Um, for example, uh, more information into like uh, chronicity if there, if, or if there's micro lesions, something that you couldn't yeah. see in a, in, a, in, a, in a brain CT scan. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend it like initially for, for all cases. Uh, I think going back to your case, if, if that patient or that athlete was going uh, like going backwards, we're not progressing at all, maybe, maybe it's not a bad idea to get. Then there are other imaging modalities that are gaining traction in research, which are like functional MRIs or uh, DTIs. So uh, that, type, that type of image is still in, in the research world, in the pipeline, is still not readily present for, for every, every clinician. Mm -hmm. and, and even then, uh, the utility of them are still being, is still being uh, decided by, by like the concussion experts in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I, there might be a point where we are sending patients to have that for second or third injuries. Uh, there, perhaps there's a time where in higher level athletes we do them as baselines mm. and, and, and so you said comparing them with the second or third injury and seeing if, that's, if there's something going there yeah. uh, but a, a basic CT scan might not be as helpful for everyone uh, makes sense um, I wanted to circle back to submaximal exercise. Um, can you kind of go into the thoughts on why that helps the patients? So exercise, as we know, like speaking of uh, uh, like going on a concussion and, and uh, into general population, it has tremendous benefits. Uh, so everyone should be exercising, right? Um, but uh, regarding the brain, uh, there is evidence that uh, some potential neurotransmitters that promote neuroplasticity are released when you do exercise. Mm -hmm. So if you're having, uh, and, and this and this is the same for a mild TBI, a severe TBI and such, if you do it in a controlled fashion, right? So um, so that's why we're saying like some maximal uh, exercise. But yeah, it's basically uh, that. The exercise has been shown to release neurotransmitters that can promote and change the structure in the brain in a way that can promote neuroplasticity and then perhaps improve cognitive deficits or, or, or the area where you're having your injury. So uh, one of those uh, hormones, BDNF, mm -hmm. right, brain-derived neurotropic factor, this, yeah. is, uh, a, 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 this is a, a popular hormone, I'd say, yeah. in the last 10 years or so in terms of research studies. And, you know, kind of just to, not to go off on a tangent, but something that is related to BDNF releases is, is diet modifications mm -hmm. and the effects that that can have on the brain's release of BDNF. Now, in the, in the animal model, as we're seeing now in the literature, BDNF is released uh, 20 fold higher in, in, at least in the animal model during periods of intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. um, you had kind of mentioned uh, during your lecture, uh, other diets, like ketogenic diet. So is there a role in management and do you see for concussion at least, is there a role for diet modifications in terms of its effect on 
something like brain-derived neurotropic factor? And, and are you advocating for diet modifications in your patients? So I, I would say I, I'm still not uh, I'm like um, instructing or, or recommending my patients to uh, do specific diet modifications such as inter intermittent fasting or mm -hmm. the ketogenic diet, which was the one that, because mm -hmm. the evidence I think is still not as robust. Mm -hmm. However, it's, uh, as you said, the science is there. So it's something that we should continue to consider uh, for future research, but also perhaps uh, even if you don't have the research study to back it up, if you have the science to back it up and it's not causing any harm and you have a patient that is not improving, uh, then why not yeah, try it? Definitely. Uh, as long as you're not doing harm. Right. So right. Uh, you, you don't have much to lose, I think. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to ask if there's any like research or upcoming research on possibly incorporating osteopathic manipulation and helping this patient population. Because I think um, that's definitely something that could, seems like it might help these yeah. patients. So Yeah, uh, not that I know of. Uh, as we mentioned before, uh, cervicogenic issues and musculoskeletal issues in general are a big part of concussion and concussion symptoms. So there might be a role. Um, uh, I think, uh, as Dr. Ott was mentioning, it, it, it takes a village. So so it, it's, it's not going to be just like I'm a PM&R doctor, so it's not just going to be me, uh, and it's not only going to be neuropsychologists. And there's room for many other, uh, like other professors or other specialties to come and help the patient out, including perhaps I wouldn't say alternative, but but perhaps not what you would think as first or second line agents for for these patients. And again, if it's not causing harm, then why not try it? I, I think the evidence right now. Uh, my lecture was more pharmacologic treatment, but you might have sensed an undercurrent that. There's not much written or, or like, I wouldn't say I don't have much faith in it, but research and, and review articles are not suggesting it's the strongest uh, tool we have for patients. They're still advocating first for uh, non-pharmacological management, and that could be one of them. So it makes sense. Yeah. So uh, it sounds like you're, you're, you have a very open approach to management of concussion, and you haven't ruled anything out, and it sounds like... Um, the best way to manage uh, people with concussions is to provide them a, a wide palette to, to choose from and, turn, and, and kind of work with them. And, and that includes both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic management, um, possibly diet modifications, advocating for submaximal exercise, possible osteopathic manipulative medicine. But it's really, it's really about working with the patient rather than, you know, giving them a prescription and say, here, take this and that you're on your way. That's only part of the battle. Right. Um, but it sounds like that's one of the, that's one of the key components to managing each patient is to see them, give them an, you know, give them a wide array of things to choose from and then let them choose and then have them come back in a few weeks or a month or so to see what's worked for them and what hasn't. Would you say that's a, the yeah, best, most conservative approach. Yeah, that, that's a, a, a good way of looking at it. Um, again, it depends a lot on on the type of patients that you're seeing. So, for example, my experience, contrary to Dr. Ott, um, has been with more chronic patients. So, mm -hmm. uh, um, if you're working with uh, like athletes who are you are seeing in between 24 and 48 hours of the injury, then your management changes. Uh, it, they they might need a little bit more structure, mm -hmm. I, 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 I would assume. However, in someone who's coming to see you because they have been six months with post-concussive symptoms, then, and potentially have already tried other things, uh, then uh, your, uh, I think, as you put it, like being inclusive of a wide array of, of tools that you have at your disposal, be it not only you, but referring to other specialists and such, uh, and having lots of things happening at the same time, uh, could be beneficial um, and including the patient as you said uh, uh, with their care one aspect that we haven't mentioned is uh, psychology so um, again going to non-pharmacological means uh, uh, I have found uh, uh, for patients who are having persistent post-concussive symptoms that uh, they have a lot of psychosomatic issues mm -hmm. um, 
again, it might be uh, again, it might be because either they had a premorbid issue or because the incidence of this injury and the, the, the stress and the pain that it's causing in their life are leading to psychological issues. And having and, and that's not necessarily treated with a medication. Um, uh, that's for psychologists and uh, Dr. Oz is a neuropsychologist and she knows a whole lot about this but um, but having like counselors mm -hmm. I, uh, there's perhaps a role for cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. for patients who are having concussion and, and that's a, an also very important aspect to include with pharmacological treatment with vestibular treatment mm -hmm. I think all those components should be happening at the same time mm -hmm. uh, as with other things in rehab what about injections I know we talked about um, occipital nerve blocks mm -hmm. are these something I, I know are these something that that can help long term or is it just in the short term uh, I see them more as a uh, an acute way to treat uh, for, speaking about headaches well headaches mm -hmm. um, so and and this is where the lack of research comes into play so mm -hmm. if, if you ask any other uh, doctor that treats concussion, they might give you a different answer, and mm. it doesn't mean that's wrong. I typically uh, don't inject patients uh, that quickly. However, I have read, as we discussed in Grand Rounds, uh, physicians that do so mm -hmm. uh, quickly and acutely. But I see it as a, another way to, for, in, in the case of headaches, treating headaches uh, as quickly as possible uh, to get patients to do better. Uh, in, my, uh, in my practice, when I was doing injections, it was more because again injections it's not like they have the best evidence to treat headaches so i didn't use them as my first line treatment because uh everything else that we've spoken about uh has a little bit uh, stronger evidence for it so i kept it as like a second or even third line agent mm -hmm. uh, and then you have to know what type of injection you're doing it has to make sense with the patient's symptoms so mm -hmm. not everyone is going to benefit from uh, occipital nerve block uh if if they're having, for example, migraine uh, uh, type of, uh, so it's it's not uh, like you're going to do this for everyone the same. You have a lot of tools, and it's just focusing on what you're going to use. For example, we spoke about botulinum toxin injections. That's commonly used for migraines. Uh, it has been shown to have some mild benefits for post-traumatic headache, but post-traumatic headache can can also be like a tension headache or, mm -hmm. or like a cluster headache, and not necessarily a botulinum toxin injection is mm -hmm. going to specifically help with that. Although I have had some, some, I would say mild benefits of it with some patients. Mm. Gotcha. Um, earlier, and one interesting point in your talk was how in Puerto Rico, you, you don't even see concussions. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about why that might be different yeah. from here where, you know, it's in the news and right. like, so, everyone so, knows that. Yeah, uh, so I, it has been very interesting. So, so, um, uh, so I, as as you two know, I I I, I grew up in Puerto Rico. I, I came here to work for for a couple of years, and, and now I'm back there. Um, and here, concussion, as you guys said, is a very big topic. Uh, specifically, in the last, I, I would say, decade or, or present two decades or mm -hmm. like decade and a half, it's gotten a whole lot of media exposure, specifically because of sports uh, and the NFL. And that has media exposure has led to, in a way, I would say, research and 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 um, like consensus statements and rules and things to get it better. But uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, for example, we don't have football like American football. We don't play that, uh, or, or or commonly we, we that's not a common sport there. It's not like like concussion doesn't happen in other sports. But uh, I think the fact that. Uh, the, the I wouldn't say lack of education, but it, it's not a, a, a diagnosis that either clinicians nor athletes nor patients hear a lot about, if at all, um, at least there on the island. So then they might be having symptoms, but they just don't know what to call it. Mm -hmm. And and they don't seek care because they don't know what it is. They, it's just another headache or it's, it's headache. And then it's clinicians also don't, it's not like it's something that they're commonly treating, so they're not looking for it. There are no concussion clinics in, in Puerto Rico at all, zero uh, concussion clinics in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, one of uh, one of uh, I think uh, one of the things is advocacy, like trying to get uh, like um, like uh, someone to represent these patient populations that might not even know they have it because we know it's happening. The other, and that takes, and that's part of like the clinicians, also does the government uh, plays a big part in it. Here in the United States, uh, there's the so, uh, a law called the Zachary Lysette Law. Uh, it's a law that uh, 
has I think has been passed in all 50 states and um, it basically says that whenever a, an athlete but I think it's more geisha and children if they have uh, symptoms of a concussion or even the the slight um, thought that a concussion happened in the sport they should have to be taken out of the sport and they cannot return to the sport unless someone clears them and that someone has to be a concussion I wouldn't say specialist but someone who, who, who feels comfortable in treating that mm-hmm. we don't have that in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. so um, so the lack of, of advocacy the lack of government uh, interest in this has led to the population not knowing anything at all about it. In clinic, I have seen patients that have concussions that come from other reasons. They're like, whoa, you did have a concussion. They're like, what's that? Yeah. So it's not that it's not happening. It's just that they just don't know how it's to call it. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Um, another question I had is, um, I know the NFL, because of the recent news about CTE and concuss- the role link between concussions and CTE, there's been a push to try to make the sport safer mm-hmm. and in some of the cases we talked about today in grand rounds they involved soccer players or football as it's called in the rest yeah. of the world so do you think there might be um like a j- room to make adjustments to the rule of soccer to reduce the instance of yeah. concussions I, I i don't know a whole lot about soccer um but um if we go by other sports uh it has been shown that changes in basic changes to rules can decrease uh, the amount of concussion incidents. So, for example, in American football, I, I, I might be misspeaking, but um, I, I think there's uh, there were rules done for like either punt returns or field goal. Uh, there was a rule that 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 made things a little bit different. It, has, it was proved that then concussion incidents decreased hmm. in that season. So, and that's a simple change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yes, there, I think there's a whole lot of, of room. Uh, and, and being objective about it uh, to look into rules and ways to decrease it without affecting the sport mm. one thing uh, uh, you mentioned oh, because we don't want uh, speaking about kids for example uh, uh, two years ago I think Stanley Herring uh, one of uh, the experts in concussion he, he was in the, in the consensus statement for Berlin he, uh, he exercised caution uh, in, 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 in how restrictive we are with sports because the, 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 as much as we want, don't want kids to get concussion, we also want them to participate in sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a fine line between being too restrictive and then not having them play at all. Um, and I think uh, that could lead to more problems along the way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think there's a lot of things, interesting things that can be through the rules, and perhaps in soccer, as you said, that I, uh, right now I'm, 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 I don't know about, but, but it should be explored. And I think uh, the government bodies for each of these uh, uh, sports are looking into that. Um, and then one just general question, um, why do you think it is important for PM&R physicians to be skilled and knowledgeable in taking care of concussion patients? So, um, as we said, it's the most common type of TBI. Uh, I would, again, we're using concussion and mild traumatic brain injury sometimes interchangeably, but it being a subset or type of mild traumatic brain injury, it's, it's much more common than severe TBIs. Mm-hmm. So, we just based by probability, we're more likely to, to face those if uh, the, the patient knows that, that, that that's something that a PRNO doctor can treat, which is one thing that I don't know the, the, the population knows. So just based out of, out of that, I think we should be experts on that. Uh, the other fact is that I think, uh, at least in PMNR, uh, we, uh, we already discussed with Dr. Ott the importance of a team approach. I think that's something that, not that the other physicians <laughs> or the other specialists don't, don't, are not team players, but um, based on uh, like inpatient rehab and the way that, that we work uh, uh, for our patients, we are used to that. That, that, that comes, uh, I think, uh, natural to us. So I think uh, our specialty is, is a good fit for, for concussion patients, mm-hmm. uh, either, either in acute treatment and, and, and chronic treatment. However, there are oftentimes, for example, with headache patients, again, we're not neurologists, so it comes a time where uh, we, we get to our limits of knowledge, and, and, we, uh, uh, and, and I sometimes refer, I commonly refer patients to headache specialists when I, 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 when I was getting out of my scope. So it also important from a PNR perspective to know what, what we know, what we can do, and, and, and to not be afraid to, to say, hey, maybe we need help, and, and get someone else to do it. And vice versa for neurologists and other specialists. 
It's interesting you say that because when you think about the average length of stay in most inpatient hospitals, it's what, three or four days, maybe five? Mm -hmm. But if you think about rehab, inpatient rehab, the average length of stay is sometimes 10 times as long as that, and then people are coming back for phase two, et cetera. So we have this distinct opportunity to see patients who may have just sustained a traumatic brain injury, mild traumatic brain injury. I know you said we use it interchangeably with concussion, but we, we get people with some degree of brain injury and we get to see them over a very long period of time, which is starkly different from what is seen on a traditional inpatient basis. Right. So we have this opportunity to monitor both their symptom progression as well as their response to therapy. So I think that it's, it's, it's becoming more and more apparent how important it is for physiatrists uh, working on an inpatient unit to be able to be familiar not only with the signs and symptoms of concussion, but the management of it. Because we have, again, like I said, this distinct opportunity to see how a patient is responding over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in, in our lecture, one of the questions from our attendings here, who is not a brain injury doctor, but a spinal cord injury doctor, was about that very fact that he thinks that uh, most many of, this, many of his patients are having concussions, which he's perhaps not entirely treating. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I actually, to be honest, I never thought about that because I, I don't generally see spinal cord injury patients. Mm -hmm. uh, I, as we said in, in the lecture, Severe uh, severe TBI patients uh, are not commonly complaining about headaches and other uh, concussive symptoms, but a spinal cord injury patient may be, and and, and we might not. Uh, there might be has to be modifications to as as he recommended for for therapy or yeah. where he or where they work, and mm -hmm. and and, and, and I, I, to be honest, it, it was very interesting because I, I, I never thought about that. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, it is important to know about it even for your patient, uh, yeah. as you noted. For sure. All right, All right. Well, Dr. Moss, thank you so much for coming down and, and uh, giving us such an incredible lecture uh, and, and for taking the time to engage with us and during this podcast. We, we really learned a lot and uh, you had a packed house and we're all very excited to, to learn from you. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been very exciting to be back here. Thank, thank you. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.